0: Hello, I'm Cassidy, and welcome to the third episode of Series 2 of Made at UCL, the podcast. This podcast tells the hidden stories behind UCL's innovative research and gets to the heart of UCL's community work. In this month's episode, we are exploring pain, the good, the bad, and the ugly side of the sensation. First, you'll hear me interview a researcher who works with people who feel no pain, and you'll get to find out why pain is necessary for our health and survival. After that, we have an innovator who has designed a new material for dental fillings that will make the procedure much less painful, and that trip to the dentist? Not nearly as terrifying. And finally, we have an artist whose unique blend of medical research and fine art photography is helping chronic pain patients visualize and more accurately communicate to their doctor the notoriously difficult-to-describe experience of pain. Through these research stories, we'll show how the feeling can be ugly, vibrant, informative, and experienced differently by all.
1: So pain is that unpleasant sensation that you experience when, for example, you burn yourself or cut yourself. Hot
2: and cold on the teeth. I think I would describe pain as being indescribable. Agony. Agony. Massive.
0: To begin our journey into pain, I wanted to figure out how and why we experience pain in the first place. I sat down with Dr. James Cox, a senior lecturer at the UCL Wolfson Institute for Biomedical Research. His research aims to understand the mechanisms in our body that determine when we feel pain. And he does this by working with people who don't feel any pain at all.
1: So in our lab, we work with patients who are insensitive to pain. And we try to find the genes that are mutated to cause that particular phenotype.
0: what, What is a phenotype?
1: So a phenotype is an observable characteristic or trait. So if you have a change in a gene then sometimes that can be seen as a phenotype, uh, for example, a particular eye color or in the case of our patients, pain sensitivity.
0: And can you give us a definition of what pain genetics is?
1: So pain genetics is the study of the genome to identify genes that are changed and are the cause of a particular pain phenotype. And that can be patients who are pain insensitive or patients who may have chronic pain disorders. But what we try to do is try to find the changes in these genes that are responsible for these phenotypes. And then potentially these can be uh, new analgesic drug targets.
0: You have worked with a patient named Joe Cameron, who is insensitive to pain. When did you first meet Joe?
1: I was first made aware of Joe on my birthday, actually, back in 2013, when we received an email from a consultant anaesthetist in Scotland called Dr. Devjit Surasava. And he had met Joe because she had visited his hospital for an operation on her hand. She had something called a trapeziectomy, and that was to remove a bone at the base of her thumb, and that is normally very painful. Joe had spoken to Dev before the operation and said that she wouldn't need any painkillers, but Dev, I don't think he believed her, but when he met her afterwards and realised that indeed she was pain-free and didn't need any painkillers subsequent to that operation he then spoke in detail with Jo and realized that she'd been pain-free all her life and had suffered injuries such as fractures or burns or cuts that didn't cause any pain
0: and, and i think i read she's like only one of two people with that, which is probably why they didn't pick it up right
1: yeah, well, she, she's the only person actually in the world that we know of who have these two particular mutations. Her son does carry one of the mutations and is partially pain insensitive. But to our knowledge, Joe is, is the only person in the world that carry those two particular mutations.
0: Oh, wow. So these mutations, where do they come from? What causes someone to have like this kind of pain insensitivity?
1: So Jo has inherited two different mutations, one from her mother and one from her father. One mutation is a change in a gene called FAAH.
0: FAAH, which is spelled F-A-A-H, and stands for fatty acid amide hydrolase. It's a gene that breaks down compounds in our body which calm us down. FA helps our body to experience anxiety and stress by stopping us from having too many of those chemicals that make us feel calm.
1: What is quite remarkable is that Jo also carries another mutation on her other chromosome. That mutation is a deletion.
0: This means that the mutation involves the loss of genetic material instead of the change or creation of it.
1: And that mutation is very close to the end of the FA gene. And at the time, we didn't know why that particular mutation was causing this phenotype, but we discovered that that deletion actually removes the first two exons of a completely new gene which hadn't been described before, and we called that gene FAR-out.
0: Is, is that purposeful, the name?
1: Well, the phenotype was so amazing, we thought it deserved a, a catchy name for the gene. So it sits next to FAR, so FAR-out... <laughs> It's a wordplay. I love hearing the guys in the lab just say far out all the time.
0: By studying the far out gene, James and his team found something very interesting.
1: What we've gone on to show is to show that that far out gene functions as an RNA.
0: RNA is kind of like an instruction manual that tells our cells how to function. And so this new gene that James and his team discovered is telling other genes in the body how they should behave. But Joe's mutation means that her far out gene carries a different set of instructions because it has lost part of its manual, those two exons.
1: And we think the job of this gene is to actually switch on far. So Joe has two particular mutations, one in the far gene which means that this enzyme doesn't work properly, and the other mutation in the far-out gene, meaning that this far-out gene doesn't switch on the far gene properly. So essentially, she has a loss of function of far.
0: When the far gene isn't switched on properly, it can't regulate the parts of our nervous system designed to stop us feeling anxious or scared or stressed. Which means Joe is pretty happy, basically all the time. I think in your research paper it showed her level of anxiety, it was like zero, and her level of fear as well, I believe, is like zero. So that's it's it's you know, I was almost a little jealous. I was like, I wish that I could have that. But then, you know, obviously it comes with some negatives as well. Could you tell us what some of the pros and cons are of Joe's condition?
1: Pain is such an important physiological mechanism it, it, it protects you from from damaging and, and life threatening events, so to not feel pain isn 't a good thing in fact because you can burn yourself, you can cut yourself and not realize it and Joe reports many instances of this, for example, she smells the burning flesh when she burns herself on on her oven and then he realizes that from, from the smell and sees, so oh yes, she she has burnt herself, so pain is protective. But in addition to being pain-free, she also has a a happy, non-anxious disposition. Anecdotally, her wounds heal faster than expected and she has reduced stress and anxiety responses. So, it's not all bad.
0: It's so amazing to me, like the thought of having no anxiety and being happy. I guess you know, I'm I'm a very anxious person. It's interesting this idea or the idea of not having to worry about anxiety at all. Is I, I can see why it's bad because I understand the stress response of it. And but it's also like, wow, that's so nice. And so <laughs> it's like a mix of, of feelings. What was it like working with this super happy Joe?
1: It was amazing. I mean, Joe has been so helpful for our research. He has come to London and and visited us and has been so patient. The search for the gene took quite a long time because the mutations were quite unusual. So we used the, the conventional approach at the time of doing something called exome sequencing where we sequence all the exons of the human genome to try to find the pathogenic mutation. And that search didn't lead us anywhere. And so we had to take a different approach. We had to do something where we looked across the whole genome to look for a deletion. And using that approach, we found this deletion that was novel and the search then was, was still ongoing because we need to understand why that deletion causes this particular disorder. And so it took us time to understand that. We, we discovered a gene that was within that deletion. And then further, we need to understand why removal of that gene affects the gene next door. So she's been so patient and she's been so, so helpful donating blood samples and her DNA for research. Actually, it's been so helpful that Jo has spoken to the media about her, her story because that has led to um, awareness of pain insensitivity and, and clinicians um, have got in contact with us, telling us that they also have patients who are pain insensitive. And, and this is, has enabled us to expand our cohort of patients and potentially we can find even more genes that, that result in this pain-free phenotype.
0: Uh, what are you most hoping to achieve with your research?
1: So chronic pain is is a myriad of different disorders and at the moment is quite poorly treated. I mean, surveys are carried out where a third of, of pe- people who are in chronic pain aren't getting relief from their current medications and they are switched from one painkiller to another to try to, to tackle that pain. But in a lot of cases, um, the painkillers just don't work. And so we need to understand the pain system better. And one way to do that is to identify these key genes that are mutated in pain-free people. And then potentially we can target those genes and they can lead to new and better painkillers.
0: James's research has implications for the future of pain medication, and one day might even help reduce the pain felt by chronic pain patients. However, The pain systems that James is trying to understand is super complex. So in the meantime, researchers at UCL are having a look at different approaches for reducing pain in their patients. One researcher who is doing just that is Professor Anne Young. She's been developing new techniques in dentistry to help improve the process of getting a filling, making it much less painful, And much less intimidating to children.
3: Hello, my name's Anne Young, and I'm a professor at the Eastman Dental Institute.
0: I spoke to Anne about a new type of dental filling she has created, why it's such an important invention, and about the process of development and deployment in the dental industry. So personally, I had to go to the dentist a lot. I've got lots of
3: silver fillings and was really quite afraid of the dentist. And a lot of children are. And I feel that having made something that can stop them suffering the fear I had
0: is is great.
3: Oh, yeah.
0: I'm, I'm terrified at the idea of it as well.
3: It was a terror of not being in control, of not really knowing what was going to happen, of the pain, of going again and thinking, oh no, I'm, they're not going to say yet again, you need yet another filling or you're going to need another tooth taken out. It became a terror
0: going anywhere near a dentist. There's this growing problem of children needing dental fillings. Why is that becoming such a common problem and why does it continue to grow?
3: Well, what we've had for about 200 years is the silver mercury amalgam fillings. So the issue has been that the mercury in them, if it gets into the water supply, it's very toxic. It gets turned into an organic mercury compound. And if we then eat fish, that can cause serious illness. So all mercury across the whole globe has been banned And as a result of that, there's nothing to make the silver fillings anymore. So those got banned in children in 2018 across the whole of Europe, and they will be banned possibly I think by 2030 in all adults as well. But really there's only the the white composite is, is the other filling material we have. So we use that for adults, but it's very difficult to place. And so we've got a lot of young children between the ages three to five that are very, very difficult to treat. You can't get them to open their mouths. They can't sit in the chair. We don't want them to have the kind of phobia that people have had in the past of going anywhere near a dentist. So trying to treat them is very difficult. So the composites that we have for ourselves, for adults, they take about half an hour to place. You have to use an injection, you have to use a drill, which causes cause pain, you you have to rinse the teeth, and that again can cause pain. And if if the child won't stay still, the filling won't be placed properly, so it falls out, they don't last very long. So there are a lot of problems of trying to treat young children, especially the sort of three to five-year-old age bracket.
0: And I imagine that kind of like dental work like the the replacement now that they have for the mercury and all the drilling and all of that is very expensive as well.
3: It's the time of the clinician that really is the biggest cost. It costs about 65 pounds I think to have a filling placed and most of that cost is the clinician's time. The material itself is maybe about 3 pounds for the the composite material and the other components
0: and how does that compare to what you're doing
3: we don't need all the other components you don't need to drill we don't need to use the anesthetic we place the material directly onto the tooth that's decayed so you can place this in one single step you can place it in about two minutes instead of half an hour so you're dramatically reducing the cost because you're reducing the cost of the clinician's time. And it's much better for the child, doesn't have to be sitting in a chair for half an hour trying to keep their mouth open. No injections, a lot less pain, no drilling out of the soft tissue, the damaged tissue.
0: As someone who has a fear of needles, that's very appealing. <laughs> Can you tell us what this feeling is and how it works? if you have a normal composite for an
3: adult you just fill the hole that you've drilled so you've taken out all the decayed tissue and you just fill it up with this composite the difference that we've done is we've made small modifications that actually mean that the composite will penetrate into the tissue that's actually diseased so you don't have to remove it so you can leave it in place you don't have to drill it out the material penetrates in fully stabilised it makes it strong again makes it so that the decay process stops it totally surrounds the tooth structure seals it and converts the tooth back to its original shape its original function looks exactly like the original tooth but it also means we don't have to take out as much of the original tooth and that's decayed tooth can actually start to repair itself. So if you can seal it effectively, it will start to put down new minerals and harden itself over time. So we're allowing the tooth to repair itself. But also we've, we've got other components in there that, that if the restoration gets damaged, it will actually self-seal and it will self-repair. So hopefully it should also last longer than another composite material, conventional one, which can get damaged. You can get cracks between the tooth and the restoration. And then you can get bacteria penetrating down and starting off the decay process again underneath. So it's uh, much better for children because it's so much quicker to place. No drilling, no anesthetic.
0: So it it starts off when, so when you put it in, it's like this liquidy kind of form. It almost reminded me of Elmer's glue in a way. And then it hardens within two minutes, I believe? It's it's a paste. Then you put blue light on it. And
3: with 20 seconds of exposure to the blue light, it will go from being a paste that will flow into all the the crevices of the tooth structure into something that has the properties of the original tooth. So it will feel within a minute exactly what the tooth feels like originally.
0: It's, it's amazing to think that you can create a substance that is also like becomes basically a tooth and looks like it feels like it has the same components in a way. So let's talk about getting it out to the public. Pretty soon, hopefully, patients will no longer have to go through this currently awful uh, dental filling process. Recently, I believe you had a successful first trial with six to 16-year-olds. So we started, we had six
3: children they were all between the ages of five and ten and they had teeth that were so badly decayed that they were having to have the tooth extracted so they had a period of a month where they had to wait between their first appointment and to actually get to have the general anaesthetic so they were given this material they were teeth that were so badly decayed, they really were not restorable. But the material worked, it stayed in place, and so much so that uh, several of the children didn't then want to have their teeth taken out. What we also managed to do is, because they then had to have teeth taken out, we were able to prove within the lab that this had penetrated right in and stabilized decay that was really extensive. So usually you would expect the child to be in pain when they've they've got these very large cavities. So immediately they were out of pain and they were able to, to cope until they had the appointments to be able to have their tooth removed.
0: I, I mean, I would really like to get this done <laughs> at some point when I have to have a filling, and and I I'm, imagine our listeners would too. I, I know you're working right now to get this product out there to the public, but it's a long process made longer by the pandemic. How long do you think it will take before dentists can start offering this alternative?
3: So we are just about to try a second trial we've just got a small amount of funding to do that hopefully we should be able to start within about three months putting it into children that come into the hospital as a permanent restoration instead of what they would usually have so we're planning in the first instance about 60 children and that will help us then to get you have to get the c mark in order to be able to go to market with the material. So it'll probably take us another year after that to get CE marking and to get it out into the general dental practices. But so probably within 18 months, two years, it'll be in the hands of the general dental practitioners,
0: hopefully. That's really exciting. For some reason, I was thinking it would take way longer than that. So that's exciting to think that possibly in 18 months, we, we could be able to use this. Despite the incredible work of James and Anne, pain will likely always play a part in our lives. It is such a subjective experience, making it difficult to describe to others. And being able to describe your pain can often be the key to a diagnosis, making the experience all the more frustrating. For this final part of the podcast, I spoke to Dr. Deborah Padfield a senior lecturer at St. George's University of London and a lecturer at UCL Slade School of Fine Art. Deborah combines medical research and fine art using photography to help patients explore and communicate their pain. She recently co-edited a book called Encountering Pain, which was published by UCL Press. She did it in collaboration with Dr. Joanna Zasheska, a pain consultant at UCLH you can download the book on UCL Press Open Access Collection for free. There's a link in the description. There are also some images you can find, and you may wish to have a look at it while listening, especially to the last bit of this story. Deborah talked to me about the collaborative projects which led to the book.
2: What we were trying to do is really explore the use of images and the value of images and image-making processes in the communication of pain and and trying to see whether having a photographic image between a patient and clinician, how can that actually expand the dialogue and the, the, the conversation that happens around it? And to hopefully make it a, a handbook or a manual that could be used by artists, students, healthcare professionals, and, and people living with pain and, and people who care for those in pain. So in a way it can sort of help them make sense of that experience of pain.
0: And how she retrained in fine art and photography after her own experiences with pain.
2: Because I, I lived with chronic pain myself as a result of surgery that had gone wrong and possibly exacerbated by an autoimmune condition. And I hadn't really realized its implications.
0: Started to affect her work in the theater.
2: My, my life changed when I had about three years where I felt unable to do very much really and I sort of had to let go of the very physical work and very demanding work I was doing in the theatre.
0: She developed her collaborative work on a photography exchange program in the Czech Republic where she experienced firsthand the importance of communicating pain and of participant-led work.
2: There was a pivotal moment when I was in the geriatric ward and there was a very elderly priest and I was being taken around with a translator and there seemed to be very little red tape as who you could photograph or not. You had to be really careful to be as ethical as you could because actually you probably could have done anything. But I went in with the camera and I wanted to photograph him in that setting. And as soon as I went in, he started crying and I put the camera down and just held his hand. And I remember as we were looking at each other, I felt, I can't photograph yeah I just I can't visualize I can't do this, and he couldn't speak because the translator said he's had a stroke and he wants to speak to you, but he can't and there was this sort of impasse this moment that we couldn't cross. And the photograph I would like to have taken, but I didn't take. But almost that photograph I didn't take has probably been the seed of all the subsequent work I've done and all the photographs I have taken subsequently. Because I think, in a way, what I was wanting to photograph was this pain of incommunicability um, and the pain of isolation and the isolation of pain.
0: Deborah, working with Joanna, as well as Dr. Amanda Williams and staff and patients from UCLH, and building on previous work with Dr. Charles Pither at St. Thomas's Hospital uses her research to help people explore their pain through photography. And what I really want to share with you is our discussion of some of the photographs that this work has produced.
2: I suppose this is one of the images which is very graphic and I have to now give a trigger warning before I actually show this image because there was one time when a medical student nearly fainted when he saw this image and I hadn't expected that but I think what I like about this image is it is very visceral. It is literally a strawberry. It's a piece of fruit. But it's very organic. It's very vivid and very red. And the person who I made it with had brought the strawberry. In fact, she'd brought a whole selection of different fruit. And the strawberry seemed to be the most apposite one. And then she pierced this knife through its flesh. It went in through one side and it came out through the other. And you can see the juice of the strawberry just weeping down the sides. And... It could be blood, it could be bleeding, it could be emotion. And I think there are interesting things in that very often when we reach for a metaphor to describe pain, we often reach for tools that might be inflict damage or harm to us. So knives and pins and razor blades and things which cut or actually create damage are almost the metaphors we we reach to for an invisible damage as it were but I think at the same time this particular person was also waiting for surgery and her surgery was really successful after which she was pain-free so you could see the knife as being a metaphor for pain and quite a classic metaphor for pain but you could also see it as anticipating and looking forward to the surgeon's knife which could actually be healing and ultimately was healing and so I think there's there's a very nice thing about the ambiguity of photographs that I think you get this image is quite a good example
0: of i think when people see it and why maybe they're so disturbed about it is because the strawberry it's got that soft kind of to it that is similar almost to like the fleshiness of our skin and then of course uh, as you talked about the stuff that that's going down the side there it looks like maybe a mixture of tissue and blood or something coming down but I love that you talked about that it has both positive and, and, and negative associations Because of, with the surgery that it turned out to be like a really good thing, but also because of the pain that she was having. Well,
2: the thing you said, it's almost like the sort of internal elements or the, the guts or something of the fleshiness that almost should be contained inside and is spilling outside. And I think that actually relates to the next image I was going to talk about, which is a rotten apple. And that was co-created with someone in the first project at St. Thomas's. And it was where he just said that having pain, living with pain, is like being a rotten apple because it's really rotten in the inside but no one can see it and it's only by the time it's really bad and it's actually worked its way to the skin and the surface of the apple that people can actually see it and so with that particular process of collaboration he provided the metaphor which is the rotting apple and actually provided the apples in different stages of decay and then we photographed them and he chose which image he thought sort of worked for him because this one coincidentally almost looks like a profile but I think it also has that degree of seeing the self as being involved in this quite negative process of decomposition, which could be literally physically and can also be psychologically and emotionally, that there's a sort of negative process that's going on, which is not a health-giving process that you might associate with an apple or fruit, which is eating away at you, both physiologically and emotionally. And I think that theme is repeated in many of the images that I've co-created with people, both within projects in the UK and also with subsequent projects in India and in Japan. But the the sense of buildings crumbling or something something being not as fruitful and life-giving as it should be
0: I was just looking at the image and I was thinking about how it relates to you because it, it's bruised the rotting kind of almost looks like bruising or if when you get the the, the blood is right under the skin and, and then it's like this dark purpley kind of color it kind of reminds me of that.
2: That's wonderful. But you see, that's the thing is there's almost bodily recognition. It's almost your body physically remembering the the sense of bruising. And I sort of hope that you bring an image into a consultation and that physical sort of embodiment of that pain is there in the image. That there is a materiality, there is a physicality to it, which both patient and clinician
0: can share. That's awesome. Let's go on to the next one.
2: This image is actually from the first project again at St Thomas's, It was where someone described themselves as a rubbish dump and they wanted me to go and photograph a rubbish dump. So I found one hang a lane and photographed it, printed it out in the darkroom and brought the print back to the room we were working in. And when she saw the rubbish dump she had also brought medication packets. So she then threw her medication across the print of the rubbish dump and we re-photographed it from above. And because of the difference in scale because it was like a rubbish dump it should become quite small within the image but the enormous medication packets and pills thrown across it it means you focus on the medication because the scale is completely wrong as well as the sort of maybe the patterns the scarring on the wall behind and this sort of sense of detritus and things that are abandoned on the ground and she said when she took this image into her consultation the consultant said to her well you know you've actually got stomach pain but you're talking about how you feeling about the medication. She said, yes, that's what I need to talk about. What happens is every time they get my medication right, someone comes along and changes it and everything gets unsettled. And then she feels like everything else in her life unravels. And that sense of medication being actually quite a contested issue... So people both want to reduce it, both don't want it and also absolutely want more of it. And the more they have over a length of time, the less effective it becomes. And, and I'm, I'm talking specifically about people with chronic pain, but it becomes a very contested area of discussion. And this image and other images which have got medication in them are selected time and time again by other people actually using them in the clinic.
0: It's interesting like this image is in black and white and then you have this this medicine that seems to be just kind of floating in the air and I feel like when you're in pain or you're going through something it feels like like almost like an out of body experience or even like with pain medication you're feeling like out of it and you're kind of twirling around. Deborah's work enables people to communicate pain as something that is indescribable and complex and deeply personal. She hopes this work can help patients express their pain and empower them in conversations that we need to have but often avoid.
2: Can it be a sort of mediating space so we both hear each other and thereby leave the conversation with more than we had at the beginning? And I think images and films and visual processes can do that because I think it opens up other ways of knowing, other ways of being, other types of knowledge, I suppose. And I would like it to be able to affect some change within our understanding of people who live with pain that they're not making it up they're not trying to complain most of them are actually trying not to talk about their pain because they are worried about the impact on the other person they want to reduce the anxiety of the other person they also don't want to feel stigmatized if i could change something of that through the images it would be fantastic if we could raise awareness of certain pain conditions and also raise awareness of the challenges of living with pain could that speed up diagnosis so people get appropriate and accurate diagnosis earlier can we change some of the conversations we have and Yeah, if I could contribute to experiences for pain patients as they go through the hospital system, if we can maybe rethink how we can have difficult conversations where we have different perspectives and think, could images be useful within that? So if an image can open up how we respond to each other, how we encounter each other, I'd be super happy.
0: Encountering Pain, Hearing, Seeing, Speaking is available to purchase via the UCL Press website. It is also available to download as a free PDF alongside hundreds of other works by the UCL community. You can also find tickets and information about a free lunch event for the book in the podcast description. This month we explored how to communicate, alleviate, and mitigate pain. Debra's research uses photography to help patients more accurately describe their experience of pain when words and things like pain rating scales fall short. James's work with a patient who does not experience pain helped him and his team discover a gene mutation that could prove vital for developing pain relievers for chronic sufferers. And Anne's work will make the normally dreaded pain we almost all have to face at the dentist a thing of the past. Thank you for listening to Made at UCL, the podcast. To listen to previous episodes or find out more about life at UCL, visit www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash made at UCL or subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. This episode was presented by me, Cassidy Martin, and produced by Karis Bradley. It featured music from the Blue Dot Sessions and additional sounds from freesound.org. A special thanks to James, Anne, and Deborah for sharing their time and experience. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights, and expertise through events, digital content, and activities that are open to everyone. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed interviewing our guests this month. Thanks again for stopping by. Take care of yourself and each other.